And we'll jump right in. God, we are thankful that you are uh, always at work uh, in our lives. Lord, that with the, with the gift of hindsight, we can see how you are shaping and, and moving and doing things to, uh, to, to serve us, to bless us, to encourage us, and to draw us closer to you. And so, God, we're, we're grateful that you care for us and that you are always working uh, in, in ways that we can see, but oftentimes in ways that, that we can't see uh, until, uh, until further on. And so, God, we, we're grateful that, that uh, before we were even cognizant of the fact, God, you were working to make yourself known to us through your word, preparing us even for this very moment. And so, God, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to allow, uh, to allow our minds to be attentive, to allow our hearts to be humble, Lord, allow our ears to be open, that we would uh, hear from you through your word this morning. God, we pray that you would draw our hearts closer to you. You would help our eyes to see Jesus in all of his, uh, in all of his strength and all his power and all his glory and all his wonder, and you would draw each of us one step closer to you. We pray this uh, in Jesus' name. For your glory and for our good. Amen. All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I'll be up on the screen or you can flip there on your phone or a physical Bible. Uh, this is a passage that many of you are, 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 are probably familiar with. How many of you have been to a wedding in your life? I love the questions that every hand should raise. That way I can know which one of you are lazy. Right? <laughs> like, I'm not moving this right hand. Uh, I'm not doing that. Right? We've all been to weddings, right? And, and, and there's a great chance, a high percentage, depending on how many people of faith you know, uh, will increase the percentage, that you have heard portions of this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, at a wedding. Famous, famous chapter, famous meditation on love. Now, this is a really interesting and important chapter, and I'm really excited uh, to get to this. Usually I get excited about preaching uh, like Sunday morning or sometimes Friday. This week I was excited on Tuesday. Um, and so I told her, she's like, wow, like, what are you preaching on? LeBron James? Or like, what's, what's happening? You're excited like seven days before. And I think for me, it was really looking at this, this chapter, a, a chapter that uh, I think much like you, um, maybe, uh, I'm familiar with, but I never really stopped to actually look at. I never really stopped to actually dig into it. I never really stopped to slow down and think about it. And as I did that, I realized there is so much there that a wedding cannot do justice to. There is so much depth here uh, in this particular chapter. And not only that, we have the benefit of having been walking slowly through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And when you see this chapter, famous for its meditation on love, when you see it in the context of the whole letter, all these light bulbs start to go off. And you start to realize and see this chapter for what it really is. And so I'm encouraged um, and excited for us to get uh, time to look at this chapter. But first, I want you to plant this seed into your mind and, and give us a, a, a sense of urgency and a sense of stakes. And, and it's this seed, that you are probably not as loving as you think you are. Okay? Can we just sit with that? Maybe, maybe let that mull over in our head as we get to enter this chapter. We, you are probably not as loving as you think you are. Okay? All right. I'm going to sit with that as well. All right. So let's just hold on to that. This chapter, I think, is going to show us the truth of that statement, but it's also going to show us how we can begin to actually be people of love and not just any type of generic love, but a very specific, beautiful and glorious type of love. OK, let's look at uh, the chapter. We're going to work through it um, in, in a couple of sections. 13 verse one. 
The Apostle Paul has just been speaking about uh, spiritual gifts and how they're for the common good and how they're, uh, they're supposed to be done not with arrogance but with a, with a new attitude, with a new uh, ethic, uh, with a new heartbeat, and it's a heartbeat of love. 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Stop there for now. Okay, so this church uh, in Corinth, first century, birthed uh, out, of a, out of a divine miracle, the most unlikely place uh, for, for a church to, to be birthed. Uh, a church has started here, and as we've been tracking through this letter, we've seen all sorts of divisions and problems within this church. This church is more Corinthian than Christian. This church is the definition of a loveless church. And so the Apostle Paul writes this beautiful meditation on love. And to us, if we just jump right into chapter 13, it seems beautiful. But if we look at it in the context of the letter, we find out it is a beautiful rebuke. Because everything in these verses describes the Corinthians to a T if the description is negative. And if the description is positive, it describes the opposite of the Corinthians to a T. For example, we get this meditation on love in verses 4 through 7. And this will give us a refresher and context of the letter. Uh, Paul says this, uh, love does not envy. Guess what the Corinthians did? They were envious. Love does not envy is heard. In it. It's shown to be a sharp contrast to the way the Corinthians were envious of each other's gifts. They were envious of this person who could speak in tongues and this person who who had the prophetic gift and and this person who only had the gift of administration. There was envy in the air of this church. This is a stinging rebuke to the Corinthians. Paul also says this, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. This draws us back to chapter 5 where the Corinthians were dealing with an issue of sexual sin in their their church, an incestuous, strange uh, moment of sexual sin that even Corinth Corinth as a city would not tolerate. And there were many in the church who did this. Oh, And Paul says, that's not love. You're rejoicing at wrongdoing. You're not weeping. You're not grieved. You're not seeking to help. You do not love one another. When Paul says this, love is not resentful, or we could think of it this way, love does not keep a record of wrongs. This was in sharp contrast to the Corinthians who, guess what they love to do? Keep a record of wrongs so much so that we find out in chapter 6 there were petty lawsuits happening within the church. Sharp contrast. Paul is working to show them this reality that Corinthians, you may have all of these different spiritual gifts within your church. You may think you are the spiritual elite. You may think you are sophisticated. But guess what? All your gifts, all your powers, all your knowledge, all your theology... All of your skills, all of that stuff means nothing if you do not have love. Paul is showing us this. The highest Christian virtue is love. Paul is making this point. The greatest display of the Holy Spirit in you is not your spiritual gifts. It's not your depth of theology. 
It's not your talents and ability. The highest display of the Holy Spirit in you is Christian love. And Paul is going to show us this in the first three verses, one through three. He's going to show us love's absence. When love is absent, our greatest deeds are nothing. Notice what Paul does here. Verse one, he says this, without love, your gifts, your actions, it's all self-seeking white noise. Paul says this, if you speak in the tongues of of men and angels, this could be the the gift of tongues. This could also be if you have the eloquent, the the most eloquent uh, uh, verbal skills known on earth or known in heaven. But if you use those skills and those gifts without love, it's nothing. It's a loud uh, clanging cymbal. It's a loud gong, like from those game shows, right? Right? You you don't want to hear that more than once. That's what you sound like all the time. If you use eloquence and speech, uh, no matter how skilled it is, but you use it without love, you are white noise, a loud clanging cymbal, a loud clanging gong. You are nothing. You're annoying. Your speech doesn't build people up. It, it tears them down. It, 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 it bothers them. It, it, it brings no benefit to the community. Because you do it without love. You do it from self-seeking. This uh, image of the loud tonguing gong even has a, a um, first Cor- uh, Corinth context of, of idol worship. Paul is making a, a, a link there as well. And Paul is showing us no matter how skilled you are in speech, no matter if you have the gifts of tongues, the gifts of teaching, but if you use that gift without love, it's not there. It's empty. Paul goes forward to, to tell us this. Uh, he, says, he says this in verse 2. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries. These are the things that God has revealed, like the gospel, which, which was a mystery but has been made known to humanity. If I understand all that, if I have all knowledge, if I have faith to move mountains. This is not saving faith. This is circumstantial faith. The ability to trust God in a hard situation. The ability to look at a problem and say, God will do something. God will deliver us. If you have all that but you don't have love... You're nothing. You're nothing in God's sight. God gives you a holy eye roll and says, next, if you have all theological knowledge, great prophetic gifts, deep circumstantial faith, but you do not have Christian love, it's nothing. He says this, In verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I give my body to be burned, if I give away all of my possessions, if I sacrifice my body for some cause, but I do it not from love, I gain nothing. Paul is showing us this. Without love, your generosity and your sacrifice gains you nothing and means nothing. Why is that? Because if you are generous without love, it means you're being generous for some other reason other than the person. You're generous for yourself seeking reputation. You're generous for personal glory. You're generous for, for whatever benefit may come. You're generous to be known as a person who's generous. And if that's what you're doing, in reality, God sees it and God says, you gain nothing. This is empty. And here's why all of this matters. God himself is love. Therefore, God cares not just about the action that we undertake but the motive by which the action is empowered. He cares deeply. God is not as pragmatic as we are. Where he would say, hey, if you're generous, it's all great, it's all good. God actually says, yeah, that's better than not being generous, but let me look into the bottom of your heart and see what's really there. If it's not coming from a heart of love, in my sight, it's empty. Now, 
This can seem maybe harsh to us, but don't we operate the same way? That we only care about the action insofar as there is alignment with proper motive. Now we know we'd rather, we rather have somebody uh, do something from a mixed motive that's partially good than do something uh, completely horrible. That's not what this passage is saying. It's saying when all those things are aligned, we do care about the motive. Think about, think about it like this. An anniversary between a husband and wife. If a, if a husband rolls in, right, rolls into the, to the crib of the living room and has a, has a bouquet of roses, would that be acceptable? Right, has a bouquet of roses and comes to, uh, uh, comes to the wife. Where's my wife? This will be, uh, right, comes to the wife and just says, here you go. And they say, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's your new Benz. Here are the keys. Here you go. The gifts are incredible, right? New Mercedes, roses not so much, but the new Mercedes, great. Right, but, but what is going to be the response of that spouse? This was not done with love. So there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a discussion. There's going to need to be things sorted through. Right? We understand that action must align with motive if the action is really going to be all that it needs to be. If the action truly is pure and honorable. And Paul is showing us the very same thing. So before we move into the heart of this text, let me just ask you this. We are already being confronted with God's definition of love. That it is not self-seeking, but it is others-centered. Let me ask you this. How many things are you doing... How many things are you patting yourself on the back for? How many things do you do that you think of uh, yourself as a generally loving person, but God knows you're actually doing it without a trace of real love? Without love, our greatest deeds, the most helpful spiritual gifts, they're empty before God. This tells us uh, an important reality. It tells us that the greatest Christian virtue is a love. And God himself wants us to reflect him who is love by being powered by love, controlled by love, driven by love, shaped by love. It's what God desires for us and for the Corinthians and for his people. So go back to that first statement that we, we started with, that we are not as loving as we think we are. The next section of scripture is going to show that to us again. Again, this is a challenge for us, but it's also a challenge meant to bring healing. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verses 1 through 3 show us what happens when love is absent. It means everything that we do, no matter how spiritually inclined it is, no matter what power or gifts are behind it, it's just it's empty white noise. But, but here we're going to see that when love is present, we reflect God to one another. When love is present, we reflect God to one another. Right? Uh, this chapter, uh, one commentator says this about these verses, uh, that there is no chapter in Scripture that more quickly reveals our sins than this chapter. Doesn't that description of love just cut you to the core? You, you, you see how many of those things are actually not present in us? When, when love is absent, where everything we do is white noise, but when love is present, we begin to reflect God to one another. This love described in verses 4 through 7 is generally absent from us, but it's present with God. It's present with God. And we see this with the reality of even, even, even the naming and even, even the language. 
We see this even with God's name. We, we know how names work. Names convey uh, essence, right? Um, which is why whatever nickname you pick for yourself uh, it has, has a particular meaning, right? I was listening to an interview uh, with, a, with, a, um, uh, with a rapper and the most uh, unqualified uh, interviewer to interview the rapper. So the rapper was like, uh, the interviewer was like, let, let, tell me about the rap. And it was just like, I gotta, I gotta fast forward through this session. Um, but it came up in this interview that the, the interviewer wanted to know about the rapper's name, nickname. And so, so the interviewer was like, your name is Tyler, uh, but your rap name is Young T. Can you explain that to me? So they had this kind of like three minute explanation of like why rappers or musicians go by a name or an alias. And, and Tyler uh, was trying to explain that he goes by Young T because it conveys this certain side of him, that, he, that he's young, that, he, that, he's, that he's, as the kids say, dripping in sauce and that he has swagger and all of these sorts of things, right? He's trying to help, help the interviewer understand that this nickname conveys certain things about Tyler, that Tyler, no offense to any Tylers in the room, Tyler just doesn't convey a lot, right? Uh, but Young T, there, there's a little bit more happening there. Right. So so name matters. And what Paul begins to explain love, he's trying to show us that this love that he's describing in verses four through seven is very much God like love. And we see it in the first two descriptions that love is patient and love is what? Kind. Well, this is drawing us back to God. Who in his very character is patient and kind. This is drawing us back to the book of, to the book of Exodus chapter uh, 34 when God goes before Moses and begins to lay out this full description of his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That gracious and compassionate, that steadfast love, that's the same sort of uh, um, central kind of language and flavor as patient and kind. And so Paul is already beginning to show us that this love is love that is like God comes from God because God himself is love. And so when we reflect this type of Christian love, we begin to reflect God to one another. I think of how delightful that would be. To be in a relationship, to be in a workplace, to be in a family, to be in a community where God-like love is reflected to you and you reflect it back to the other. That's what Paul is showing us here and what the Corinthians completely lacked. Christian love reflects God because God himself is love. Think about this. God is love because God himself is so other-seeking that he looks at humanity who has rebelled from him, sinned against him by nature and by choice, and God does not give humanity, you and I, what we deserve, but God looks and thinks within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how can we bless these people who have cursed us? God thinks within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before eternity passed. How can I love these people who have not loved me? How can I rescue these people who are running towards their own destruction, cursing me in the process? How can I care for my creation that has turned their back on me in treason? God is love. His very essence and nature is self-giving to benefit the other. And so Paul is showing us here as he lays out love, as he shows the Corinthians, you are the most unloving community I've ever smelled or dealt with. But God is love. And if you begin to understand that or reflect that, there is a hope for you to do the same. So this is Christian love. This isn't just love in a lovey-dovey, a romantic sense. This is God-centered, God-inspired, God-inherited, God-powered love that Paul is calling the Corinthians to reflect and inviting us to, to do the same. So let's look at this description that describes God, but then also is an invitation for us to, to model this love. Notice in the description of love how many negatives we have. 
How many love is not statements, right? And this is the flashing, uh, uh, flashing light that alerts us to the reality that there are certain practices or certain ideas of love that are actually not compatible with Christian love, with love as God truly is. We see this in the, in the, in the, in the description and definition, and it, it leads us to, to enter into this thought, that there are certain tendencies that are inherent inside of you and me, that if we are to live out Christian love, we must confess and then reject those tendencies. Does that make sense? That's what the knots remind us of, that there are things that we are inclined to do by our broken nature, that if we're going to live out Christian love, we have, to, we have to rebuke those, we have to block those at the rim, we have to turn from those and turn towards God-like Christian love. And here are the three things inside of us that this definition shows us. Uh, envy, boasting, self-seeking, arrogance, rudeness. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking, which is what the Corinthians love to do. They love to look out just for themselves. It doesn't just look to themselves. It looks to the other. We must reject these things, even though they are completely natural and default to each of us. We know how envy, boasting, self-seeking, arrogance, we know that these things left unchecked destroy souls, they destroy relationships, they destroy, destroy marriages, they destroy church communities, they destroy families. We, we know that. And here's this interesting thing. How much of this definition of love would we look at and say, I'm completely on board with that? Most of it, right? If not all. And yet we have no power to actually do it. We, feel, we, we fall into the same ditches of being arrogant, of being self-seeking, of being rude, right? We need God's grace to enable us to reflect God-like love. We look at the back half of verse 5, we see that love is not just challenging these things that are in us, but love is difficult to do when you're around certain people, right? Can I get an amen there? Right? So this definition of love is showing us a couple of things. It's showing us that there are certain barriers inside of us that keep us from living out Christian love. But this definition is also going to give us the reality that there are certain people around us that make it difficult to live out Christian love. Look at the back half of verse 5, the greatest rebuke that, uh, that, that we can feel maybe from this text if you're like me. Love is not irritable or resentful. That one cuts, right? Love is not irritable or resentful. Right? What happens when Christ-like Christian love comes into contact, not just with the brokenness in us, but with maybe difficult people or circumstances around us? Well, Paul says when God-like love comes into contact with difficult circumstances or difficult people, guess what? Christian love is not resentful. It's not irritable. It's actually the opposite of that. It's gracious. It's patient. It's understanding. It's forgiven. I mean, this is, this is a hard rebuke. Christian love means being the type of person that it takes a lot to grind your gears. Christian love means being the type of person that has an incredibly long fuse because that fuse has been drenched in the knowledge that God is patient with you. Right? Christian, this, this love is a reflection of who God is. 
And God does not fly off the cuff at us. He's patient and gracious. So this is a hard rebuke to us. Right? Think about this, the irritable. This is such a challenge to me. I get so irritated um, often. <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Don't laugh. You're supposed to say, no way, you never get irritable. Right? I get so irritable, uh, even just with my, with my kids. Right? Oh, give me this, 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 give me this. I love you. Forgive me, Julian. You know I have to say sorry for that all the time. He's waving in the back. <laughs> right? It's easy to be irritable, is it not? Right? And here's where I think some of that irritability comes from, is when we see ourselves as the king or the queen in the game of life, right, and we enter into any situation where we feel like a pawn, right, we become irritable. When we don't get our way, when things are going according to our plan, when someone is not treating us with the royalty and the, and the divinity that we have, right, when they don't see the invisible crown upon our head and the red carpet all around us, right, we begin to be irritable. Because we think of ourselves in the place of God, but not in the place of sameness with everyone else. So this is a rebuke and a challenge to us. Resentful. Let me ask you this. Resentful means you don't keep track uh, of a record of wrongs. Are you a resentful person? Are you the type of person that when someone wrongs you, you put it in your mental Evernote, and there's going to be a way of retribution that's going to come back later? Paul goes further, says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, it, it, it rejoices with the truth. This is sort of the centerpiece of, of, of Christian love here, I think. Other, other ideas of love, culturally, um, may be patient, they may be kind, but this is part of the distinction. This is uh, part of what uh, flavors this love to be distinctly God-centered and Christ-like. This is sort of the, um, the black mat that allows the diamond of Christian love in this text to shine brightly. This is, this is telling us that Christian love has a, has a moral compass, has a moral framework, has a, has a reality around it that's shaped. Our love is shaped by God's way, God's words, God's wisdom. Jesus himself says that, that God's word is truth, right? So this is telling us that, that we love in accordance with what God has told us and has revealed about us, himself, and the world. This is a huge challenge, I think, for us because our conceptions of love is really just telling somebody whatever they want to hear, doing whatever's going to avoid the most conflict, and then we, we stamp it with the sticker of love, and then we congratulate ourselves for being super loving. We know we enter into the realm of love when we graciously, tenderly, patiently will step into a conflict to bring greater good. We know we're actually operating in Christian love. Well, we don't run away from the problem, but we run towards it, just like Jesus ran towards the cross to solve the problem of our sin. When we actually deal with things according to the truth, we don't rejoice over sin, we weep over sin. We, we don't rejoice over something that's broken and just say, that's their problem to fix. We actually say, how can I enter in and be helpful? Just as God does. So let me ask you this. In, in the name of love, do you pull back from difficult conversations, conflict? Or in the name of love, do you step into those things in an appropriate way, with tenderness and patience? Right, we, we need this reality that love does not rejoice with wrongdoing. 
we need this reality in our political and cultural moment, right? Where we look at people from the other side or other perspective and they enter into a scandal. And we say, yes, right? We rejoice that bad things happen, right? To people that we would say, hey, they're bad. I don't like what they're doing. We need this. That's not, that's not a Christian way of loving. A Christian way of loving that reflects God says that anything bad that happens to anyone, no matter what I think of what they're doing, I grieve and I weep. And I wonder, how can I help? How can I pray? How can I serve? Think about Jesus, who sees Jerusalem in unrepentance. And he doesn't look upon them and and say, ah, God's judgment will come upon you. But he looks over the city, and what does he do? He weeps. He doesn't rejoice at the wrongdoing. He doesn't shrug his shoulders at the wrongdoing. He looks, and he is grieved to his core. Because to a T, he embodies Christian love. Last description, we see this love hopes all things, believes all things, bears all things, or endures all things. Right? This is the reality of the purity, the concentrated purity of Christian love. Reality of Christian love looks at a person and sees the image of God in them and hopes the best, believes the best, desires the best. Christian love doesn't look at a person and size them up by their clothes, size them up by their education, size them up by their dress, and then just begins to project. Christian love looks at them and sees an image bearer of God, one who can be redeemed by Jesus Christ, loved by God, and believes, hopes, desires the best in all pureness. You see the challenge of this passage. You see the rebuke of this passage. Does does this Christian love, this description of Christian love, does this describe you? Is there a specific aspect of Christian love described in these verses that you hear and you look at and you say, God, I I know in my heart that in particular I lack. Or even think of these verses. Can you you enter in and insert like a Mad Lib? Can you you replace love and enter your name there with with a straight face in any of these sentences? Can you say blank is patient and kind? Blank does not envy and boast. I am not arrogant or rude. I don't seek my own way. If we would rest our inner lawyer for a couple of minutes, we would know that we cannot do that with any sort of honesty or integrity, at least wholesale. But there's one who can, which is Jesus Christ, the friend of unloving sinners. Jesus can put his name here, and he stands under the weight and scrutiny of this beautiful description. We can can honestly say of Jesus that Jesus is patient and kind, that Jesus does not envy or boast, that Jesus is not arrogant or rude, that Jesus does not insist on his own way, that Jesus, praise God, is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus is the only one who can stand under the weight and scrutiny and beauty of this description of love. And so we rejoice that Jesus can stand under the weight of this description, but we rejoice more than that, that Jesus put this description of Christian love into decisive action for you. Jesus took this description and embodied it, because in his very essence, he embodies it already. Think of Jesus. Never did Jesus seek his own way. Never did Jesus enter into his earthly ministry looking to make a name or reputation for himself. That would have been the Corinthian way, but not the Christ-like way. 
Jesus so looked to the interests of the other that Jesus followed the Father's will, went to the cross, bearing pain, shame, and God's judgment in our place because he was not self-seeking. Jesus is so patient and kind that never does Jesus turn away a sinner when he is encountered by one of the Gospels. Never. In fact, he comes so close to sinners that everyone else wonders he must be blasphemous. That is how patient and kind Jesus is. Jesus is not arrogant saying that, oh, dying for sinners, Father, that's, <laughs> that's a little bit below me. Have you, have you seen my CV? Do you know, do you know, do you know who I am? That's, that's below me. No, he, he, he embraces that mission and fulfills it to a T. He says, this is not below me. I love to serve. Look at this. Jesus does not resent us. Would you sit, would you sit with that for a moment? Jesus does not resent us. Jesus does not resent you. Jesus has full, intimate knowledge of all of your sins in their entirety. From action to thought to motive. And yet he does not look at you and resent you. Instead, he looks at you and loves you. Who who, who has done that for you? Jesus is the picture of Christian love. So in our best efforts, we cannot live out this love, but Jesus has lived it out. And here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of Christianity is that through faith in Jesus, not only are we forgiven of our uh, unloving ways, our, our ways of not loving God and not loving neighbor, not only are we forgiven of those, but there is a love transfusion that takes place where the power and the ability to live out the love that only Jesus Christ has done is now put inside of us because his Holy Spirit lives within us. We have hope in Jesus' name to live live out Christian love. Not with perfection, but with real progress. Because Christ dwells in us by faith. There is a real opportunity, chance, for you to live out Christian love. And my guess is, knowing many of you, that is already happening. And so we can stand under the scrutiny of this passage and not feel condemned because we have grace from Jesus. We can stand under the scrutiny of this beautiful passage and not feel hopeless because Jesus' spirit lives in us, allowing us to make progress. Do you see the double-sided, a double punch, the double-sided coin of gospel good news here? Do you see it? Forgiveness and power to change come together through the work of Jesus Christ, by any person who grabs hold of it by faith. It's the good news of the gospel. 1 John 4, 7 makes this clear, and then we're going to spend just, I promise, less than five minutes on the, the last five verses. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. It's saying Christian love comes when, we are, when we, we are changed from the inside by God. We are born of God. We begin to mirror the family, uh, the family traits of Christian love. Anyone who does not love in this way does not know God because God is love. This is the hope said in a different way that God himself is love. And if we are born of God, if we have trusted in his son, we bear the family resemblance of living out Christian Christ-like love. We carry the DNA of our father and his very essence and core is love. You may notice this. I have a five head. My kids, you know they're my kids. Adrian is so light-skinned, you, you may not know that he's my kid, but Julie and Adrian are my kids because they do not have a forehead. They also have their father's five head. They carry the nature. 
First John is telling us, First John is sort of the, the, the side dish to the main meat of 1 Corinthians 13. It's telling us that if we do not have this love in us to some degree, we may not be born of, may not be born of God because this is part of the family resemblance. Not the perfection, but do we have a little bit of this Christian love? And the hope and the good news is we can, and we do. That through Jesus, by faith, you can be transformed to increasingly love as God loves. Where you are unloving, confessing. And where you need to be transformed by Jesus' love, which transfused Christian love into you, ask him, pray, say, God, help me. When Christian love is absent, everything is white noise. But when Christian love is present, we love one another with a love that reflects God. And people are built up. People are cared for. People feel nurtured. People feel welcome. People flourish. Imagine if that is what increasingly happens in this church. Imagine if that's what happens in your marriage. Imagine if that's what happens in your family. That is good news for us. And while we now try to live out this virtue of Christian love here and now, Paul continues on in these last couple of verses. We'll look at those quickly. And he's going to show us that when love is absent, it's white noise. But when love is present, we reflect Christ-like, God-like love to one another in the community, in the church. But love also has a future. And our future, our legacy with love, is that we will experience God's love completely unfiltered. He wants to encourage us and inspire us with the reality of the importance of love as the highest Christian virtue, which we can seize through Christ. So let's look at verses 8 through 13, a couple of comments, and then we'll pray. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, when God's kingdom is fully consummated, when, when heaven comes down to meet earth, when all things are, are made new by God, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And he gives us sort of an example. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the highest Christian virtue. Here is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Corinthians, you idolize prophecy. You idolize tongues. You idolize teaching. You idolize spiritual gifts, but you forget that the greatest spiritual gift, the greatest display of the Spirit is not the gifts, but love. And here's how you know. That love will last while prophecy will cease. Teaching will cease. Speaking in tongues will cease because when God's kingdom comes, do you know what we will be doing? We will be living in a world of love. We will not be living in a world of teaching. We will not be doing this anymore in the new heavens and new earth. Because we will just go to Jesus and speak with him. We will feel, we will see, we will know all of the attributes of God. That preaching, that prophecy, that speaking in tongues, that, that building up one another, that, that allows us to experience. We'll know all of those completely unfiltered because we'll be with God face to face. We won't see in a mirror dimly, but we'll see with clarity. The partial things, the temporary things like spiritual gifts will pass away. But the one thing that the Spirit produces that will not pass away, faith, love, and hope. But the greatest of those is love because love is the centerpiece of who God is. And love, therefore, is the centerpiece of the new heavens and new earth. So Paul is trying to help them understand that. Stop obsessing over these things which will, which will, which will expire, but major on this thing, Christian love, that will last into eternity. Paul is showing us this uh, particular reality that in eternity, in the new heavens and new earth, love will never end because God is love. And we will have an eternity to sit under the waves of his love. I want you to think about this. How many times do you experience something good 
and you wish you could go back to the very first time you experienced it. I was talking about this with somebody who was nerding out over a video game. They're like, oh, I wish I could play that game for the first time, this level, this box, all these types of things. I wish I could go back and experience that for the first time. Right? Insert whatever that thing is for you. Paul is showing us the reality of heaven being full of God's love because God himself is love. It's the reality that when we are with God in eternity, we will experience his love with a freshness each moment, each day, because love never fades. And love of God that we will experience in eternity will feel like we are experiencing it again for the first time. And yet it will have a higher wave of understanding, a higher wave of appreciation each time that we sit under the experience of God's love. This is the wonder of what it will be like to be face-to-face in the presence of God and his people. Love is the greatest Christian virtue because God is love, and love does not end. We can experience God's love now and into eternity. We can live as a community of love now by faith in Jesus and dependence on his Holy Spirit. Will you embrace the wisdom of this text, which reminds us that our skills are not everything, our spiritual gifts are not everything, but mirroring God who is a love will never end. Let's take a moment to reflect and pray silently. We'd encourage you in light of this text to go before God and just ask God, say, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want me to hear from this text? There are ways you are convicted of your lack of Christian love. Would you confess those to God? Receive his forgiveness. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you feel comfortable, I would encourage you silently to just say, God, if, if, you, if this is real, would you make this known to me? We'll take a moment to pray silently and they'll lead us in prayer aloud.